Rain, Rain. Hello, David. It is very good to see you again, my friend. Yes, good to see you too. How's it going, man? In in uh, Ketchikan, Alaska. I'm still every day. I go. When am I going to visit? But I'm not getting well, on a plane. Not getting on a plane. Dude, let me tell you the honest truth. It has been a tough summer here because uh, it has rained so freaking much, man. And you know, and I'm a pluviophile. Those who love rain, a, a pluviophile. Oh, That's right. Rain is called pluvia. So a pluviophiliac is somebody who's crazy about rain. And, and I love rain, and I, it keeps me in the studio. But man, we actually did. We did it this last week. My inner rain gauge was saying we were close to it, but we did it last week. We broke the all-time recorded history record. 2017 was beating us for a long time, but no, we got those final few inches. We had 47 point something or other inches. The normal is about 25. So we're basically wow. double the rain this summer. Yeah, but you're nowhere near 400 inches, which is like the the, the rainiest places on the planet, which is Hawaii and somewhere in the uh, in Borneo. But I don't well, know, wait a man. minute, if you were to look at the recorded history of rain, the amount of rain in Ketchikan over the decades that they've been keeping records. Is it a general increase or does it go up and down like a spike? I mean, how is how does it relate to deep time? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I'll have to get my meteorologically you don't know. Mind. Well, I don't, well, I'm just, <laughs> anecdotally, I know that 2017 was the other wettest year. So my, I'm guessing we're, we're going up. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, people tell us the climate is changing and this big, hose pointed at southeast alaska <laughs> from down near australia where people know about you <laughs> no wait 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 no 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 dude the northern hemisphere does not really mix with the southern hemisphere so you're talking about a low pressure that's in the northern pacific has nothing to do with the southern hemisphere sorry across the equator the, the, the weather it can influence it but it's not related okay well i just look at my little uh phone apps and i see this steady stream coming from the play school app <laughs> <laughs> it's like a big hose coming from the south northern south pacific whatever but okay. you you're a man who knows the land down under yeah so who am i to challenge you right our guest today oh my god is he this guy's prolific he has so many disciplines so many fields of study yeah, he's he's written so many papers. He's going to dwarf us mentally, Ray. I, I'm I'm fearful. We're in for a heck of a really fun ride. Uh, we're talking about my friend Peter Ward, who is a paleontologist at the University of Washington, and I've known him for who maybe. How'd you guys meet? We met at the Burke Museum where he worked. Uh, oh, that's in Seattle. And then I read one of his many books. He's the author of like 16 popular science books. And there's one book in particular that blew my mind early on. And Which one? I'm going to be a bit of a fanboy with Peter. It's called On Methuselah's Trail, and it's about living fossils. Right. And uh, he starts, he's got a deep love for uh, nautiloids, the nautilus, and ammonites. Cool. And cool. he's the world's expert in ammonites. But then that took him into this, we're going to find out about his career path. But he's, he's a big thinker, and really, what can we learn from the past? What's happened in the past? Heavy stuff, or cool. let's just see where the heck this conversation goes. You never know here on. I'm right in the middle of his book, A New History of Life, about how life began on this planet which if you remember that was my that's my chosen time to visit back in time the day that inorganic that's right compounds turned into organic life and uh that's right if there's a guy that could tell us how life started yeah, it's him let's ask it's him. him so but uh there's a lot to talk what about do you say should we uh let's just call him i up. think we should call him up Hey, Peter Ward, it is so good to see you again, my friend, paleontologist uh, extraordinaire at the University of Washington and uh, all those cool things, man. Peter, how are you doing, sir? Doing well, thank you. And thank you guys for doing this. The public needs more nerds. No, more paleo nerds. All right. Uh, are you a paleo nerd, Peter? Uh, I'm actually a neo nerd. Paleo means I'm old and dead. So I'm a new, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> so... Peter, how did you become a paleontologist? You're, you're a Seattle-born guy, right? Uh, what's your road to paleontology? Roy Chapman Andrews. All about dinosaurs, the books. 
all about dinosaurs. And there they were in the Gobi Desert and their damn motor cars broke down. And they had to have camels who brought them water and saved them. And in the meantime, off they found those protoceratops eggs. What romance that was. I mean, who could not fall in love with paleo seeing that stuff? That's all fantastic, the Gobi Desert. So as a kid, you were reading those books, uh, Roy's books, and looking at the, the picture books. And so dinosaurs were your early love in life? And Yeah, but then when I was 10 years old, um, I, we lived just near Seward Park, which was one of the really great, giant, perfect parks of Seattle, Washington. One of the old growth havens still left. So a great big park. And it turned out that my brother and I are walking around the edges, and here is a little muddy, awful outcrop. Seattle has no outcrops, Ray. One of the hateful things about Seattle, there are no sedimentary rocks except those god-awful glaciers. And if there's two <laughs> things I hate, it's glacial deposits and basalt, which cover <laughs> most of the state. I mean, we yeah. would have this. Can you imagine eastern Washington if you could rip off the Columbia River basalts? You've got the entire column under that crap. Anyway, we found <laughs> some rock banged away with hammers, and sure enough, out popped some clams and snails, and they turned out to be an unknown deposit of Miocene or Oligocene-aged rocks, which do underlie Seattle, but had never been found at that spot. Wow, so that was kind of a turning point. This is you and your brother get found fossils, and off you went, eh? Here's even a better turning point. My mom called the then just-built Burke Museum, and ah. this is 1960, and... Um, a young professor named V. Standish Mallory jumped in his car, drove down, came to see us and the fossils. And this fossil, I think, was probably Burke specimen number seven or eight or 10 or something. Wow. Payback machine. And he said, well, look, young man, when you grow up, come to the University of Washington. Not only did I do that, I took his job many years later. <laughs> <laughs> so actually... You know, I was looking over your... Wait, wait, you know what? That is a classic example of evolution. That's Darwinian. Oh, you evolved and replaced him. Darwinian. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, yeah, I was reading through your vast, on ResearchGate, you know, all your papers, and I noticed I was looking for some of your earliest papers, and he's, Mallory is a co-author on one of your earliest papers, and that's, that Ammonites became your thing early on in your career, right? Yeah, well, it's even a stranger story than that. Um I was Mallory's undergrad student, did very well, but I still love my dinosaurs. Yes. And I was also the best student of a man named John Redsberger, who was the vertebrate paleontologist and a very peculiar, peculiar man. <laughs> I, I, I met him once, yes. And uh, he, I, he, he took me on to be his grad student, and he said, your job is to collect fossil whales. And so we went out and spent several weekends along the Aleut Peninsula and never found a single piece of bone ever. But Rensburg wait, said, where is that? The this is Northwest Washington State. The entire coastline, it turns out, has Cenozoic deposits and from which have come many amazing fossils. But at the time, um, we couldn't find anything. And Rensburger said, well, look, um, you will... You will get your master's degree, but because once you find one of these, you're going to have to excavate it, and it is a whale, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you will take 10 years to get your master's degree, and after 10 years, we'll see if you should go on for the PhD. And about that time, a very good amateur collector dropped off about 100 fossils from Susha Island, Washington uh, State, and among them were some of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen, ammonites. So I said to Dr. Rensberger, who was a very peculiar person, um, I'm changing thesis topics, in which case he fired me. And Mallory, the man who came down when I was a little boy, said, you could be my grad student. And things went happily forward. Wow. So Susha Island, the Ammonites were calling. So these are all the San Juan Islands up in northwest Washington? That's correct. And so the first December, I'd just been a grad student for several months now, uh, Dr. Mallory decides, let's go to Susha Island. December in our waters can be a little bit nasty. And so we rent a boat from fisheries with this really bad engine and launch on Orcas Island. So it's two miles across some really nasty water to get Susha. And halfway through, the engine conks out. And we've got five grad students in Mallory. <laughs> and all we have, we didn't have oars, we have a shovel. 
And so we rode our way to Susha <laughs> in, in a heavy surf with the shovel. And Mallory was doing the shovel, and I was trying to fix the engine. And every shovel full, he shoveled on top of me. So we got to the island, all right. Thoroughly very cold, very wet, quite a miserable trip. Wow. wow. Peter, I want you to notice uh, that I'm wearing a Cretaceous shirt right now. You didn't like the Ordovician-themed one, but uh, tell us about the deposits on Susha Island. What's so special about them? Well, for Washington State, they are unique in that they're the only place in the state where you have really beautifully, beautifully preserved late Cretaceous, in this case, we now know 80 million year old rocks. And it also ultimately became the only site in Washington state that has ever given up a dinosaur bone, right. a Tyrannosaurid of all things, found many, many years after my initial introduction to Susha. But I had grown up, Ray, every summer on the north coast of Orcas Island looking at Susha. This thing had been in my mind's eye ever since a really small boy. Mm. So we had taken many, many trips there when I was young. Would this Cretaceous strata be the North American coast then? Because it certainly wouldn't be anywhere near the Inland Sea. Well, so we thought then. Uh, it was actually the southwest coast of North America back then. We now know that this was formed off Baja, California and the famous Baja-British Columbia hypothesis, you have all of this really tropical stuff. And it was my work later that with paleomagnetic gear, drilling holes in rocks and getting the ancient latitude that showed that this was in the Cretaceous at 22 degrees north latitude. It is now at 48 degrees north latitude. That's 3,000 kilometers of offset. Wow. So this is a large landmass that came up to North America and split? No, it's the fault. It's the sliding north of the American continental plate along the San Andreas Fault. Right. I have riverbed strata in mountains here in Ojai that was formed 14 million years ago near San Diego, and that's 175 miles south of here. Wow. And at two centimeters a year, the math checks out. Yep. And actually, it turns out that this huge offshore continent was moving at 22 to 25 centimeters a year, maximum plate tectonics. So this is, we are, we are actually redefining um, the, the plate tectonic speed limit, which is how <laughs> fast can the plates go? No, this is a real thing, the speed limit. And so it was thought 18 centimeters a year was max. Now we know it's 22 to 25. Wow. India had the same speed. And India was moving north at exactly the time that in half the globe away, Vancouver Island structures were moving north. And there seems to be some relationship here. Peter, ammonites, you say they're such beautiful fossils. Can you walk us through the three basic kinds of ammonites and describe these creatures to us? And um, There's keepers, there's tossaways, <laughs> and there's the ones you can't get out of the rock. So <laughs> of the keepers, we have ones that are spiral. So there's the chambered nautilus, which is the closest living relative, and certainly a very close morphological analog to what these things are. But over the last, say, 50 million years of ammonites, because they first appeared in the Devonian, so they started over 400 million years ago. So of that 400 million years, their last 50 million, they decided, I don't want to be an ammonite anymore. The prototypic shape of an ammonite is a spiral. But late in their career, if you will, they were undergoing enormous competition with fish and many other marine creatures, that particular shape, which had served them so well for so long, no longer seemed to be a good one. And so they started producing many strange shapes. So you have the normal spiral we're used to, but some became totally straight. Others tied themselves literally in knots, and many became snail-shaped in form. And over the last 50 million years, this cornucopia of shapes appeared which is the most fascinating epic of their existence, in my opinion. So in the late Cretaceous, these uncoiled ammonites are the heteromorphs, and they're just wacky, weird. How, how do these animals 
Some of them look like trombones. Oh, yes. Giant paper clips, big yes. saxophones. Yes. Um, let's pretend that you are going to be a really brave man today, Ray, and you are going to go jump in a hot air balloon. Yes. And what does your balloon shape look like? It's got a big balloon, and you've got it hanging down beneath it. You've got the basket, right? Right. So let's pretend that you want that balloon not to have a balloon shape, but how about making it look like a trombone or make it look like a big snail or you've got you've got all kinds of fun you've got a long straight skinny helium it still works doesn't it right. you can think of these things as hot air balloons in the oceans because they're floating in midwater and these are simply buoyancy compensators methods of keeping them neutral buoyancy the basket is where the guts are in the tentacles so what is the first evidence of an ammonite in the fossil record how far back do they go and what was their transitional marine creature that turned into an ammonite strangely enough they go i mean they go way way back again to the devonian period so uh we had the cambrian the ordovician and then the devonian the third of the period with animals 375 million years ago yeah it's actually even older there with the dates keep changing around but right about there 400 to 375 the ammonites evolve from their deep ancestors called nautiloids so the irony is we still have nautiloid cephalopods, even though they were the ancestors of ammonites as well. The ammonites appear, they evolve from these things, they exist, they completely overwhelm their ancestors, the nautiloids in numbers, but then die out at the end of the Cretaceous, the asteroid kills them all off, the nautiloids keep percolating around, and we still have Lots of those. Wait, what's the difference between an ammonite and a nautiloid? Aren't they basically the same? Look, I'm holding up a nautilus that I found on the Great Barrier Reef, 600 miles north of Cairns. This looks just like the shell of an ammonite. Yep. Well, that turns out to be a species that we find right off the Great Barrier Reef and also osprey. And I've collected and actually gotten specimens from both places. Yeah, they, they float, but your nautilus there has very simple chambers. The ammonites had very complex chambers. You can't see it until you rip off that outer shell. But if you were to, you would see the septa, which are the buoyancy compensator part of it, are highly complex at an ammonite and very simple at a nautilus. But there's a far more interesting difference that's hard to see. Nautiluses always hatch at 25 millimeters or more. Ammonites always hatched at one millimeter. They were really tiny. Nautilus produces 25 offspring a year. Each ammonite may be 1,000 to 100,000, just like an octopus does. They float in the plankton. The Nautilus is never in the plankton. They are really different. So that's why, as I understand it, the ammonites do not survive the Cretaceous extinction because they're planktonic babies and they're planktonic but the Nautilus was deep water and had larger young and stayed deep and basically survived the planetary blast, right? The nuclear winter. Absolutely, absolutely. The plankton is ruined. The plankton is destroyed. These little ammonites, when they hatch, they don't have buoyancy compensator ability. They're just a tiny little air-filled shell. They, not only are they up in the water column, they're right, I think, right at the surface. They're held at the surface, yeah. and they get totally blasted. A Nautilus hatches, we now know from our work using oxygen isotopes, 200 meters, 600 feet deep, and it takes a year to hatch. The Cretaceous Nautiluses hatch just the same size, identically as the modern-day ones. So they sat down there in their bomb shelter for a year, came out just like the Gary Larson cartoon. Where is everybody? <laughs> extinct, 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 extinct. Wait, is there fossil records of the baby ammonites? Sure. All you have to do is cut open any ammonite. You go right to its middle, and there it is. You find out exactly it's hatching. They keep every bit of their stages in them if they're coiled. The straight ones, forget it. You never see the early hatching of straight ones, or rarely. Once in a while, you know, Ray, baculites give you every right. once in a while some of these, but not very often. Well, my, my question, you have, you've helped me with my many of my uh, drawings of Cretaceous animals and and uh, that whole scene with uh, all the Vancouver, Sushi Island critters and all these fantastic ammonites. But in all the millions of ammonite fossils that have ever been found, have we ever found the soft parts? Do we know what or how many tentacles they had or if they even had tentacles? 
is it an educated guess to basically put a squid-like animal on the end of them or something more like a nautilus with many arms? What's your take on that? Is- um, if I can't remember, no, yes, yes, maybe no. <laughs> yes. Is there fossil evidence of the soft part? No, no, we have ammonites. Why do we have these beautiful, beautiful birds from the Solenhofen limestone? And right next to them, there are ammonite shells with the jaws in place. So if the jaws are in there, the jaws are at the very front of the animal at the aperture, so all the guts are behind it. Nothing. We don't know how many tentacles they have. But yes, Ray, you're correct. Probably imagine a squid, but not just any squid. The squid we see today, the one we eat, the reason we like them, they're full of muscle. I mean, these are lots of good stuff. Let's imagine a squid, which really has some, well, I don't want to go too far into this, but let's just say it's a squid. If it had a prostate, it had a huge prostate problem. It can <laughs> never pee. It barely can ever urinate. So every bit of urine it ever holds, it keeps inside them. Urine, by the way, is lighter than water. There are many squids called ammoniac squids, which keep all their ammonia from their urine as a buoyancy device. But they have almost no muscle. These things are just big bags of fat. And ammonites may very well have been that way. The the retractor muscles, the amount of musculature, very, 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 these are not big active creatures, other than the great big pachydiscus, a few were. Placentisaurus, maybe, but most of them were just bags of goo, and they don't leave enough hard part, even hard part muscle to produce. Floating around and... Floating around. So ammonites did not have chambers like a nautilus. Oh, yes, they do. They they absolutely do. They have their buoyancy there, too, but we think one of the interesting things about ammonites is that when you do the calculations, much more of their shell chambers are filled with a liquid so they can move water around in the shell in very intricate ways that Nautilus cannot. Add to that then probably an ammoniac buoyancy system. You have an animal that's perfectly suited for a low energy existence. I don't have to really swim all the time. I can float, I barely need to eat. I can eat once in a while and it lasts a long time. These are life in the slowest lane, not like squids today. Do you think they had tentacles so they yes. could grab stuff and pull it in? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Think of just one of these, all the gooey squids have tentacles still. The best analog we know of are the cranked squids, which float with the buoyancy. The It's like the hot air balloon up, tentacles hanging straight down, exactly like a baculite. They've got pretty big. There's that one notorious uh, fossil up in the mountains of above Fernie in British Columbia. It's about eight feet across. Have you seen ammonites that big in your career? Um, I've seen the cast of the Fernie because my advisor after Mallory, when I went off to uh, McMaster University in Canada, Gerd E.G. Westermann, who is one of the great ammonite workers of all time, he had a cast of it. And so we were able to see that big monster. Ray, though, the world record, and this is apocryphal, appears to be Alaskan. Daryl Cowan, yes, Daryl Cowan says a shell geologist up in the Matanuska had measured what he said was a 10-foot diameter Lytoceros. Oh, uh, that is the would be the world record, and no one can now track down that guy. He died or where it was from, but somewhere up there. I mean, everything's big in Alaska, right? Yeah, baby. Don't we have an invite to view a mosasaur skeleton in the Matanuska Valley? Dave, that was a plesiosaur. Sorry. Uh, I've been up the Matanuska. It's a frustrating place. Well, Ray, you know it well, but oh, yeah. you've got, you got a lot of muskeg to find to cross before you get to the outcrop. We need a helicopter. Let me, let me give you a hint first. Uh, go to River. You can drive okay. right up to it. You can walk down into the, um, by the river, cut through the Matanuska. It's the only place you can get real good uh, outcrop, and you get lots and lots of Inocerma schmidi and beautiful ammonites. There's a um, Potagiocytes nelsonensis from there that Davy Jones said. Great spot. This 10-foot-wide shell, was it in, where is, what did they say he saw? He measured it in the mountains somewhere or what? Well, then after that, he went up and saw Bigfoot. <laughs> okay. okay. All right, Peter, I've got a couple of questions to ask you. Uh, you are uh, pretty much an expert on the uh, 
the Permian Triassic and the KPG extinction boundary and events. And after reading a bit about you, you're a pessimist. <laughs> you're an anti-Gaiist. In other words, you believe that life does not encourage and promote life, that it actually kills itself. I kind of agree with that because uh, we humans are doing a damn good job so far. It all has to do with hydrogen sulfide. I want to hear about this. Well, let's look outside right now. You're going to have to wear a mask to go outside, right? And that's about as, I call it the Medea hypothesis. Gaia was the Greek good mother, and the worst mother in Greek mythology was Medea. Jason's wife, she murdered her children, was because he was such a bad guy. So there's the good mother and the bad mother in mythology. Yeah, I, what mother would kill her children? And why is Mother Earth now throwing this awful virus at us and killing so many of us? Put it this way, get a, a jar of beetles and let them eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. They will poison themselves to death before they die of starvation. If they're in a closed jar, uh, life produces a whole lot of bad chemicals. And hydrogen sulfide, you just mentioned, is certainly a substance that is, comes from the rotting of animal material in the lack of oxygen. And it is highly poisonous. So yes, there's no good end to life. It eventually dies. So in the Permian Triassic, the biggest killing of all time, the estimates are 90% of life went extinct thereabouts. Was that a quick dying? And there's been volcanoes. There was the asteroid theory for a while, but you don't buy into that. What's your take on it, Peter, after years of study? Well, Ray, you know very well that the further back you look, the more imprecise dating becomes. I mean, to try to resolution of even million-year intervals when you're talking a quarter billion years ago becomes very difficult through our dating. You know, we are so used to radiometric dating and carbon-14, and oh boy, carbon-14, you know, it's 97,000 years ago, plus or minus. No, when you're talking 250, the dating is very difficult. So we can't say if the extinction took five years, 500,000 years, maybe 1.5 million years. Uh, the best guess, it, it was a series of pulses of death that probably lasted 100,000 years. And we know this from looking at the oxygen, but mainly the carbon isotope record. There's a series of pulses indicating mass death, then things get back, and then mass death. But there they're not like an asteroid. An asteroid kills you, and if you're a dinosaur, you got three months. Everything else on the biosphere, probably six months to a couple of years, whereas in the Permian extinction, a whole bunch would die, some would come back, a whole bunch would die, some would come back. What happened there at the end of the Permian? Uh, it's what we're doing to the planet right now. Too much CO2. Global heat waves. There is going to be record heat this weekend in Los Angeles, California, again. And there will be from that all kinds of nasty global aspects. But even worse is, let's just say we're in a world where there's no ice caps at all, where carbon dioxide is already really high, way higher than today. And then we add to it a real nasty volcanic episode where huge amounts of lava flows into stratal coal deposits. What I'm finding fascinating, Ray, is that the understanding of what this volcanic episode, it's called the Siberian Traps, why they use trap is interesting. It's a, a Scandinavian word for basalt deposits. So we call trap is cool. It's like a Trappist monk, except they were for <laughs> life and this is for death. And only the very first pulse of this did much because it turned out that it invaded sideways. The lava was such that Yes, much of it came up on the surface of the planet and did nothing. The lava is irrelevant on the surface. But there were stratiform deposits rich in sulfur, both coal and sulfur, but lots of sulfur-rich sedimentary rocks, gypsum. And the sideways-moving basalt burned sideways into rock, not just on the surface, and caused huge amounts of sulfur to come out. That sulfur, when it hits the atmosphere with all the CO2 and other volcanic exhalations, turned out to be uniquely poisonous to land life and created acid rain in the ocean that sulfurized and then acidified. And we see these acidified marine deposits. So the acidity of the ocean is so high, the invertebrate larva can't survive. 
boom, dead. There's a whole cascading thing that happens. And over and over, not just once, over and over and over. So you're saying just like what we're doing to our oceans, our, the pH is lowering, uh, yep. calcification yep. can't happen yep. uh, with the shelled animals, and the plankton can't even form their little baby, beautiful, chalky colithophore. How do you say that? Cocolithophorids. Cocolithophorids. Say that real fast, you, you get arrested if you're a professor. Yeah, and so uh, you're saying that this sulfur is the same thing that's happening now, but more of it. So what is the evidence of it? I mean, how do you see that there is a mass of sulfur? We see the great dying, but where is the sulfur in the rocks or evidence of that? Are there isotopes? Yeah, lots of there's an, isotopes, of course, there are many ways to use them, but also there's direct observational evidence. You can see at rocks that now have been dated using the best methods we have, but all over the planet, uh, calcareous organisms show a degree of dissolution. You can see that, oh, they're dissolving away. And that soon after you see the size of existing creatures gets very small. When you see pygmies, you know that something strange is going on in their environment. In the, in the ice ages, when rhinoceroses and mammoths got to small islands where there's not much food, they became pygmies. Well, you also see small size organisms during times of crisis, because big size is very difficult to obtain. You die more easily. It's much better to be a low energy, like the ammonites, low energy animal, doesn't take much to eat. Great Danes are hard to feed. I have a friend who has a 160-pound Great Dane. I've got a 35-pound Spaniel. I don't have to feed my Spaniel much compared to that Great Dane. In reading your book, The New History of Life, you state that the two major snowball Earth events were caused by microbial life. Oh, Medea strikes again. I, I think it's just coming out recently. I've seen in the mainstream news that people are starting to become aware that Earth was completely covered or mostly covered in ice two separate times and for 20 to 50 million years each time, correct? Absolutely. And let me then bring this to pound on the table about one of my hobby horse nastinesses, okay. this idea that we're in a sixth mass extinction. Number one, we're not in a mass extinction. But number two, if we were, it would be the tenth, not the sixth. Because the two you just mentioned, those ice events, would have been so devastating to life. How could there not have been mass extinctions caused by it? So you've got the two there. You've got the great oxygenation event where the first time oxygen hits the planet is so poisonous, it kills off probably 99.9% of all the microbes that were then on the planet, all depending on no oxygen. You unleash this poison. Plus we have the Ediacaran fauna. You know those well, Ray, where'd they go? Well, they go when animals first appear. That, so we're up to four already, right? So nine is the KT event. And if we're in one now, it's the 10th. So you don't think we're in an extinction event right now? We're in an extinction event, but it's not a mass extinction. All right. At least not by the rules of the past. When, when did the snowball earth phenomenon happen? You said a couple of times. When, when in time were those events? Yeah, one was 2.2 billion years ago, and the other was about 675. The 675, 660, though, is the reason we have animals on earth today, I'm pretty sure. And this is another why the Earth is so rare. I mean, if we didn't have that event, do we have? Why do we have thirty-five or thirty-six animal fires? Okay, wait, wait. Prior to the second snowball event, uh, microbial life was only prokaryotic. <laughs> it's pronounced prokaryote, Dave. What are you ever going to learn, man? No, nope, after the first snowball. So for two point two, we see the first eukaryotes about. Two billion years ago, somebody, a little guy called Grypania, and it looks like a little piece of kelp. And he had a nucleus. Yes, he did. So, and it's multicellular. Multicellular nucleated creature, like a little piece of kelp, at about two billion years ago, 1.9. And then by one billion years ago, we start seeing all kinds of kelp-like algae in the ocean. So think of the world as having enormous 
areas of microbial mats and little bits of algae that are now shallow water, flapping in the water and pumping out oxygen like a <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> we'll play play. <laughs> yeah. Here's a little Biology 101 refresher. A prokaryote is a cell without a nucleus, like bacteria. A cell with a nucleus and more complex structures is called a eukaryote. So there you have it. Carry on, all you eukaryotes. <laughs> See what I did there? Huh? They're the ones that created oxygen in our atmosphere. Absolutely. Life created oxygen, which allowed more complex life to evolve. Life created oxygen, which killed off almost life on the Earth. And a few things survived. They adapt. And that, it isn't like life made oxygen to make things better. It's like life, it's like, hey, come on, we're Jurassic Park. What's Dr. Malcolm say? Life will find a way. <laughs> and then Medea will kill it. <laughs> well, we are Medea, right? We are, you heard about the Siberian traps. I like yeah. to think now we're in the time of the human traps. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Okay, so wait, after the second snowball event, all right, we had another mass die-off, and the Idacrian fauna didn't start till 600 million years ago. Okay, let's think about that, though. We have the second snowball. It, is, it hits a world that has a world ocean. It's pretty warm. We have so much CO2. So we have a global tropical ocean. There are far fewer mountain ranges. Continents are way smaller than there are, and it's a pretty benign planet. What causes diversity? Diversity appears when you have gradients, like a north-south coastline. Oh, that cold Alaskan water. I'll tell you, I was down in San Diego. I saw those red Garibaldi fish frolicking around. You don't got those in Alaska. So no. up down on north-south coast and our ocean, lots of different species. Now we have this global world, low diversity, and all of a sudden, we freeze it. What happens to all that life? Most of it dies, except that the Earth was way more volcanically active back then. So you've got volcanoes everywhere. You've got ice everywhere except a volcano's hot. Around the island volcanoes, you have little aquaria. They've got, there's the ice over there, Dad. I've got a mile of open water around this volcano. And it's warm. And it's separated from the other volcanoes by the ice. I'm separated. I have my few little creatures in here. My conditions are different from the one 20 miles away. I start producing adaptations to my little aquarium. Think of that world with a million of those little aquaria, everyone separated for tens of millions of years, and then it all melts. And there are all these really different creatures are thrown into the global ocean at the same time. 35 phyla appear from this. If we didn't have the snowballs, I don't think we have the diversity of life on Earth. In the Cambrian, with the Cambrian explosion, that's when So you're you... saying the Cambrian explosion is a result of all these separate evolutionary islands? Bingo! Winner! Winner! Take it home, $7.15 <laughs> to the man in the black t-shirt, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Coming together after the ice melts and you have this soup. Boom. Yeah. Wow. wow. Okay. Wow. Is that in the book? That is why that's life? why hallucinogenia looks so much <laughs> different. That's why drugs are so cool. Absolutely. <laughs> no, that's why hallucinogenia looks so much different from Anomalcaris. That's what I should do. My next book should be the drugs we have are because of the Cambrian explosion. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a dull world without it. <laughs> want to hear about some of your adventures around the planet this extraordinary planet you've been all over the place you've dug uh, for fossils in the Karoo you've been you've hunted giant ammonites in Antarctica you've uh, been swimming with Nautilus and uh, there must be some great field trips fossil moments I'm wondering and you've dug a lot of fossils in your life is there a life-changing moment out in the field where you found a fossil that just you still remember to this day uh, there was a life-changing moment where my field assistant drowned in my arms. What? That's pretty heavy. That changed my entire career. 
that's when I started going into mass extinctions. I was doing all novelist work and Mike Weekly, 1984, New Caledonia, embolized on a dive and oh dear, he passed out. I had to go down 190 feet to get him, bring him up. I got the bends. I've got metal all through half my body from that day. And he, we couldn't save him. I couldn't save him. I had to get drained of his blood. I drank about two pints of his blood doing mouth to mouth because his heart popped. Wow. wow. Okay. In New Caledonia, where they didn't have recompression, um, I had to put the body on ice because there's no American embassy. And to get him out before he rotted, we had to do all kinds of crazy stuff as I was bleeding out of eyes and ears. Yeah, that will change your life. That's not how you got your, your metal hip, is it? Absolutely. Oh, it is. From the, the bends that you Absolutely. Suffered. And Ab you were diving for Nautilus. Yes, and some Tahitians had come. We had put a Nautilus out in holding traps, and we were doing the tracking. It was the end of a week at sea. We were living on a bigger boat, and we were catching Nautilus macropolis. We were putting little transmitters on them, following them day and night and day and night. And it turned out it was just a trip through hell. Uh, the transmitters we found out at the end weren't working correctly, so all the day was and uh, we were really tired, but on the last day, uh, we wake up, and here's these guys hauling up our Nautilus. We're having a holding trap. So we're in the lagoon. We take the big boat. We go racing out to try to scare them away and get our Nautilus, and they have taken half of them. So we dive down a 20-foot dive just to repair the line to make sure we get our other experimental animals back. And on that dive, Mike Weekly, who was 26 years old, decides he sees some fish Stay behind me and keep those damn sharks from eating me while I retie this line. So I retie the line. He's turned around, let's go, and he's gone. And I look down, it's just this sheer cliff, and there see this tiny little body way down there. That's heartrending. Um, yep. the, the Nautilus are, we should not be buying Nautilus shells in shops, should we? Absolutely not. And I think if there's one thing I'm proudest of in my career is that two years ago, we successfully finally got CITES uh, to... Which is? CITES is Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. CITES finally listed by majority vote of all the countries on the planet. We finally had to get the Japanese to say yes. So you can't catch Nautilus and sell their shells anymore. But I was approached in 2010 because this thing in 1984 stopped me from doing Nautilus work and put me back on land. So all the stuff Ray I did subsequently was because of this death in 84. I just stopped my Nautilus research. I see. That's the end of that. So Peter, this tragedy that you experienced, how did that change your life as a scientist? I mean, obviously it's a heart-wrenching uh, event that someone experiences, but how did it change your life as a scientist and, and what did you pursue after that event? It changed my choice of studies and it got me to become doctor of death, not doctor death, but doctor of death. So I concentrated instead of on life, on death. Why do things die? And that led you to the studies of these extinction events through the course of, Absolutely. of life. Absolutely. Huh. In 84, he died. By 86, I was in the Bay of Biscay studying, and from then on for decades, studying how fast did ammonites die? Why do things die? Why does Nautilus live and ammonites die? Why am I alive and Weekly's dead? What do you think is the great death mystery on this planet that we have not solved yet or have an explanation for? What death is. Um, strange enough, my most referenced article now of all time, first is Rare Earth, the book, but secondly, one of my last students began to study bacteria high up in the atmosphere. Ray, you know the high alpine lakes, they only get their nutrients, nitrates and phosphates from bacteria falling out of the stratosphere. Mm. That's the only way above tree-lined lakes can get enough nutrients, but they're rich ecosystems. There is an aerial plankton. However, the bacteria up there are not technically alive. They insist and turn into dormancy. And this is why panspermia, the movement of bacteria from planet to planet, is entirely feasible. 
This is the bacteria they found in space that still in a state of suspended animation or? Yes, and viruses do this too. Uh, we could really see, for instance, we know the Gobi Desert can be picked up off China, transported across the Pacific and drop. So the same student, he, um, he was able to get NASA to let him put scoops on a U-2 spy plane. And so he got this thing to go way up. But he had the greatest, David Smith, and he works for NASA now, greatest thesis topic of all time. There is a Sniffer Observatory at the top of the Mount Bachelor ski slope. A University of Washington professor has an ability to take the atmosphere and pull out the bacteria from it. And because it's up at 10,000 feet, it pokes its nose higher than any place around here does. So he all ski season for three years would ski up, look at his little machine, and then have to ski down because he did something wrong or something and he needed to do the circuit. Beautiful skiing on Mount Bachelor. What a great scam. That, I mean, great thesis, that is. <laughs> so you've got high life up there. The definition of what is alive and what is dead. You go back to hydrogen sulfide, I really got hooked up with um, people at the Fred Hutchinson Marine Lab, and they're looking if you put hydrogen sulfide or if you give even simple animals ever lower oxygen, they die, but then they can be brought back to life. It's alive! Yeah, I saw that talk of yours. The TED Talk, yeah. Yeah, you're saying that if we introduce hydrogen sulfide in the atmosphere, or as a blood transfusion? Well, we're saying if you give it by just into somebody's mouth. So the thing is that uh, the people doing this, Fred Hutch, were trying to study was during the Iraq war. They're trying to figure out how can you bring back a soldier who bled out, a human that's newly dead. They're dead because they've lost all their blood. Well, what happens, of course, is that in your brain now, your brain cells start dying for lack of oxygen. But if you could artificially remove oxygen right out of the body, it's like sucking oxygen out of your whole body, it puts you into this preservative type state, suspended animation. Hydrogen sulfide will do that. It stops the cells from doing their normal respiration, puts everything on hold. And then you can have a much better chance of reviving people. You pump them back full of blood, you got a chance. So who's studying that phenomenon now? Who's working on that, that idea to use this? Again, this is a group out of the Fred Hutchinson. I've been out of, I have not been in touch with them for a while, so I'm not sure where that has gone, but I know they were going to do human trials in Australia, which was interesting, and I never heard further about it. So I don't know where and what that has done. Wow. Now, Peter, we always ask every guest, where would they like to go back in time if they can choose a an epoch or an era or a period and i've always wanted to go and see that very first inorganic bubble turning into organic life on the on day one 2.3 billion years ago or when when would that be what what day was it that was tuesday two billion years ago three billion 3.5 billion there probably okay sorry it was a wednesday 3.5 billion so that's where i would like to go you why don't you ask the question ray we asked this of all our guests, Peter, if you could go time traveling and go back in time, what would you like to see? When would you like to go back to? Uh, I want to go back to the Montmartre in 1880 and buy all the Impressionists. <laughs> I could buy every painting, all the Impressionists for $15, and I could be a trillionaire now and think of all the science I could do. Okay, but you're a paleontologist, Peter. Take okay, wait, wait, I have to say then. one thing. Do you know why that Impressionism, uh, that style is because they all needed glasses? Yeah. Oh, that's good. I like that. Or they're all doing psilocybin mushrooms, one <laughs> or the other. I mean, there's got to be drug-induced craziness happening. Matisse needed glasses. Go on. The absinthe. The absinthe. I did a short story for one of my, my least successful books called Time Machines. And at the end of the book, I put myself in a boat on the ocean above Susha Island, just as the magnetic reversal switches. And that's where I go. Can you paint a picture of that world for us? Because I know you've imagined this world many times. Yeah, uh, I was trying to think about this, Ray. And I think now that I have you on the phone, I'd like you to illustrate something I want to publish in Atlantic Magazine. All right. I thought of you, you and me. What are two of the craziest body plans we lost in the Cretaceous we've never gotten back? We've talked about one of them already, Baculites, a vertical creature that only lives vertical. So the thing about Baculites, the head's down, the thing's up, it's mm -hmm. little jet propulsion. All it can do is swim hard up. 
So okay, I'm thinking, okay. A, a baculite is a cone. It's an ammonite. Yeah, it's an ammonite, but it's it looks like a very long extended ice cream cone, very long. A finger. Yes. Now think about this. How do you know? How do you know they were vertical? Well, we made models for my thesis and many other people too. The the shell has air filled chambers in the pointy end. The bottom end has its weight of heavy shell plus body. Got it. So all the weights down, and it can't do anything but vertical. So I call this, Ray, the matator defense. So there it is sitting in the water. You're a fish looking at me. I wave my eight tentacles at you, all middle finger tentacles. <laughs> you, you try to eat me. So what does the fish do? He comes straight at you, right? Right. Just blow a little bit out of your hypodome. Where do you go? Straight up. Wow. Fish always expect their prey to move sideways away from them. They wouldn't know. What the hell? Where'd that thing go? True. That's brilliant. Up it goes. What's the other body plan that disappears? The biggest clam that no longer exists, Inoceramus. That huge clam. Well, here's what I tell my students. How big? How big was it? Oh, Ray knows. There are some of them two meters. Some say three meters. Yeah. These are enormous creatures that were on every ocean bottom from the deepest to the shallowest. This was the most common animal on the planet in the Cretaceous, by far. They're everywhere. Mollusk or a bivalve? It's a big clam. They were also the rudest, weren't they? Uh, Get it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes and no. No and yes. But that's beautiful. I like was that. Was this a <laughs> joke, Ray? Was yes, that a, it was, was a paleo joke. Can you explain the joke to him? Explain the yeah. joke, please. A, a rudist is a type of clam that probably did photosynthesis like a tridacna, the true giant clam does. But it made up the Cretaceous reefs. That would be number three, really. But, Ray, it seems to me those two body plants have totally disappeared. The Inoceramus lived in a world where there was so much methane coming up that all of them were methanogens. We're just finishing the paper showing this isotopically, that every time you find a Inoceramus clam, if you do the temperature from a shell, it's always warmer than everything else around it. It's not because it lived warmer and fell in there. It's because it produce calcium carbonate, the oxygen isotopes are skewed warm because it has lots of bacteria in it taking methane. These are really stinky oceans. But these things, if you think of what are the two sizes of clams today, the biggest clam is our gooey duck, right? No, the biggest clam is tridactyl, the giant clam. The second biggest clam is the gooey duck. There's nothing in between. Gooey duck's this big, giant clam up to three meters. That big space in between is empty. But why are you saying that body plan has vanished? Because it hasn't. A giant clam exists in Giant a... clam is not an Inoceramus. It is a photosynthetic creature. Inoceramus were methanogenic creatures. Ah. And we have a few. Solomaya is one where you have some of the stinky stuff you find small clams. But big methanogens okay. are gone. Please educate me. I've, I've free-dove the barrier reef very far, far north, Queensland. And I've seen giant clams, half the size of Volkswagens, and they are filter feeders, aren't they? No. Well, they are sort of, but they get most of their energy from the zooxanthellae. The fact that they're so pretty when they have their mantles oh, open. Oh, right. It's a symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. Oh, with a photosynthetic microbe. Totally. Yeah. And so that's a whole different world. And Inoceramus would have to be up in the photic zone. They're not. They're down to the deepest oceans, big ones down in the deep ocean. That thing's gone. So that strange pipe ammonite and this giant clam all over the Cretaceous, they never re-evolved either way. Yeah, you see these beautiful, gigantic uh, Inoceramus fossils from Kansas and uh, yeah, Vancouver Island's got big chunks of them Just up there. Just tell me, that. say that so, again, a what a ceramus? Think of the illustrations, Ray. I know ceramus. I know ceramus. I know ceramus. You know ceramus either. <laughs> Okay, I know Ceramus is a giant clam. Yes. It's a song. Peter, we could talk for, for days. You are awesome. I talk to myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, science is under attack nowadays because uh, mostly the other virus, by the way, is social media. People are believing opinion over fact, and they're even discrediting scientists. How can we promote the idea that science is real and opinion is just that, an opinion? Uh, I've thought about this a lot. I I have the sense about humanity is that the percentages don't change much through time. So the percentages of totally ignorant people who want there to be superstition 
is probably about the same percentage now as it was during the Salem witch trials. I don't think things have changed. What has changed is the absolute numbers. Now, in absolute terms, say 30% of humanity are just ignoramuses and are happy to have all kinds of crazy stuff. But now you have near 7 billion people. There's so many out there with access to social media that it's become so much more pernicious. I think you just need to applaud those who are fighting against it, such as you guys. Don't call the ones who are really ignorant deplorables, as Hillary did, because, <laughs> I mean, that lost her the election. Yeah, right? well, that's backfired, yeah. The thing is, we are talking to the converted. The people who are going to listen to your website, your podcast, they already believe. They're already science literate. You're not going to hit people who don't want to hear this. That's the bad news. How do you break through? I don't know. I don't think you can. I think we all have to do what we could do in our own little way. I do it one t-shirt at a time or one <laughs> podcast at a time or one piece of art. And, and I'm uh, raising a son to challenge everything. Yeah. Well, I'm talking to you guys, so there you go. Yeah, there you go. So if I could be a fanboy for just a minute, Peter, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for some of your fabulous books. I'm holding On Methuselah's Trail, which I read in 1992, and it really changed my life in so many ways. Um, what is it about, Ray? Why is that? Well, basically, it's uh, one of his Peter's earliest books, and he talks about uh, living fossils, but he also went through uh, all the cataclysms that the Earth has faced and all the extinction events, but also just pointing out some real crazy cool things that like the moment in that book, Peter, there's a paragraph where you talk about when the, that first fish came up onto land. It's in your chapter that's called Out of the Ooze. You said in that chapter, Out of the Ooze, that that moment that our fishy ancestors left the water should be that's the most incredible step that ever happened in the history of life and why don't why don't people know about that i remember this uh, like it was yesterday you know i read the bit where you're talking about eurypterids giant arthropods uh that which are the giant sea scorpion the for giant those of sea you scorpions, don't know but but you're saying that you know our fear of spiders and of like creepy crawly things like that with the many arms maybe it's like even more deeply embedded in our consciousness that like that is a, we have some vague memory as a vertebrate being pursued by these these were our enemies and eaten alive by eaten by uh, these things and and I've I've looked at spiders like oh that's what Peter was talking about. Well, they were about. eight feet. There's new evidence about this that goes right back. I didn't know then that I know now. Let me say to both of you. A giant cosmic ray burst is about to hit both of you. I'm a few minutes behind you. I know it's not going to kill me. You're both going to die in 30 seconds. And this is the truth. You're dead. Uh oh. Hopefully, you, you believe me. Ha <laughs> ha. An enormous amount of cortisol burst through you. Cortisol is the human stress molecule. Do you know when cortisol first appeared? It first evolved, Ray, in those same fish that were eaten by Eurypterids. Yeah, our ancestors. Our ancestors. Cortisol is 500 million years old. Wow. The same lamprey cortisol is one in you right now. Wow. So does that kind of thing? But that's a fear response. That's, that's, that's a, a fear that's response. A, yep. Right back to your Eurypterids, baby. That book changed my life, Peter. And Thank I've been continuing wow. to read your, your books and Under a Green Sky, The New History of Life. You're one of the planet's great thinkers. And I really I thank you for your contribution. And you're one of the planet's greatest artists. I don't ah. know how much you know. I appreciate your paintings because they are extraordinary. Peter, what a fantastic interview. So, so grateful for your time today. Well, it was fun. Thank you, keep, Peter. Keep going. Really appreciate it, man. <laughs> All right. Talk to you. Wow. That was a great, great interview with Peter Ward, wasn't it? He's a great thinker, man. He thinks way outside the box and yeah. he's got some uh, some pretty astounding uh, theories that he's throwing I never out there. knew. I never knew that the baculites, which I've collected Cretaceous marine yeah, yeah. sediment in Wyoming, which are the long tube-like, I never knew they were vertical in the water column. That is absolutely insane. Yeah, when I've done these drawings of uh, Cretaceous Oceans, I've turned to Peter for guidance, and he's helped critique my stuff, and he was the one. So if you actually look in a bunch of my drawings, you'll see all these, and we'll have some on the website. You can see they're all vertical, and these beautiful uh, heteromorph ammonites that uh, Peter did a lot of work on all float through there. So that's so amazing. I never knew. that. I mean, they were around for 250 million years, and the end of the Cretaceous, the, when the comet or, or meteorite hit, 
it created this nuclear winter and it created dust all over the, the planet and the photosynthetic plankton, which lives in the first few inches of the oceans, died out. And that's where the little baby ammonites. The little baby lived. ammonites did not make it, but the deep water nautilus did yeah, make it. Yeah. So that was a pretty kind of vivid picture. Yeah, so. that was great. Yeah, and the Medea hypothesis, it makes my inner hippie Gaia guy kind of sad. I don't know, man. Well, uh, I don't know. Considering I'm closer to death than I used to be when I was younger, mm -hmm. <laughs> a lifetime on this planet, I, I don't fear my own mortality. I, I accept it. Uh, if I die tomorrow, I've lived a beautiful, wonderful, fulfilling life. I've given back to this planet. I, I've left the room better than when I found it. So, so being really death does yeah death does not maybe not at your house. Death <laughs> does not uh, death does not scare me. I somehow see the the planet as uh, as Richard Dawkins once says. Right now, as we're talking, Ray, as you and I are talking, millions of creatures are either being eaten or doing the eating. They're in the ocean, they're on the plains of Africa, they're in the tropical jungles. Things right now, as I'm saying these very words, are getting eaten and they're getting eaten alive. That is the yeah. nature of life. Life is brutal. Life is is brutal. Yeah, we're, getting, we're getting kind of cosmic here, but you know, with the Medea hypothesis that life kills life, that life, the mother earth is actually a killer mother. Uh, it's it's sobering, but uh, I think Peter's message too is that knowledge and yeah. uh, right, we are the sentient creatures that can change that. We have the ability to dream. We have the ability to invent. We have the ability to have poetry and music and song. We can change this Badia hypothesis, can't we? History is a vast early warning system. We learn that, but it's up to us to change things, man, to help us survive through one podcast at a time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to go get a baculite-shaped ice cream cone. <laughs> I'm going to go look into the beautiful spiral of an ammonite and think about the cosmos, man. All right. Uh, that was awesome and uh, got me thinking. I'm thinking. All right, buddy. All right. Have see you, man. Goodbye from Ojai. Goodbye from K-Town. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleonerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening.